The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 4, 10-13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Timmy. Also, Caitlin, if you're still here, I think they may have left uh, because they were here at the early service as well, but great to have kids involved in leadership uh, during our service too, isn't it? Um, Just love how the body of Christ is at work in that way. Um, And uh, so if we have not met, and I think I've met most of you, uh, because we are in life together as a church family, but but those of you who are our guests, uh, my name is Scott, and it's my privilege to open up uh, the scripture today for us. Um, we're in uh, the home stretch of our summer series in Philippians, and I know it's sort of still at the beginning of the summer, but we're going we're gonna, to um, take a, a pause next week uh, and do a single, uh, uh, you know, standalone sermon next week about the new initiative that we just uh, announced in our congregational meeting about uh, adding the role of, of deaconesses to to our leadership, and so the whole sermon next week is going to be about that, and then we will wrap things up uh, with the Philippians series, and then we'll do a seven-week series on the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, the first uh, uh, three chapters there, if you want to read ahead um, in Revelation chapters one through three. But for this week, I want to start this message by just uh, taking my own walk uh, down memory lane to college. I can remember two things that I learned in college. Uh, I've forgotten pretty much everything else. The two things that I learned were both in introduction to economics class. The first thing was Tinstoffel. Ever heard of that? Acronym for there is no such thing as a free lunch. That means that somebody pays for everything. Nobody gets something that's completely free. If you're not paying for it, somebody else is paying for what you're getting for free. So that was one thing I learned in college. And the second thing I learned was the law of decreasing marginal utility. Uh, Some would call this the law of diminishing returns. It's an economic principle, and it goes like this. The more of something you have the less satisfaction you are going to get over that thing. The less you're going to enjoy it, the more that you have. And so, if you, let's say you go to the beach one time every four years, the beach at that level of frequency is going to be an amazing experience for you, hopefully pretty much every time. But if you go to the beach four times every one year, your enjoyment of that experience is going to become uh, a good bit less than if it were once every four years. Here's another one. Say you test drive a Ferrari. You know, you get half a day 
just you and that car and maybe a, you know, a racetrack or an open street. Your experience of that Ferrari is going to be different with the test drive than it is if it actually becomes your everyday car that you commute to work in. It's going to feel like a Honda Civic to you eventually. And you're going to think, well, I, I need to get with Elon Musk and ride some rockets because the Ferrari's not doing it for me anymore. You can, you can live in a town that has an idyllic view everywhere you look. I remember asking a question to somebody who had moved to Denver, Colorado, and they'd lived there for two years. And I asked the question, just sort of tongue-in-cheek, how long did it take you to forget how much beauty that you're surrounded by every day? And they said it took about two weeks. I don't even notice it anymore. And I can attest to you from personal experience that the fifth slice of pizza is less satisfying than the second slice of pizza. The law of decreasing marginal utility, the law of diminishing returns. It goes like this. Anything, just about anything in life that you, you overindulge in for comfort, for escape, it could be food, it could be vacations, it could be shopping, it could be your work, it could be gossip, it could be a screen. Overindulgence will actually work against what you're going after in the experience. You ever have that experience? The more you indulge, the worse you feel. Love decreasing marginal utility at work there. Paul actually has a different perspective on this law because what he goes for and what he goes to for, for comfort and for perspective and for reorientation is not a fifth slice of pizza. It's this. It's Jesus Christ. Alleluia. All I have is Christ. That's, that's Paul's mantra when he's living in plenty. That's his mantra when he's, when he's living with nothing, when he's in prison surrounded by walls like he is as he writes this letter. And contrary to the law that I learned in college economics class, Paul would say, the more you experience Christ, the more you run to Christ for your comfort and for your fill, the more you indulge in Christ, the more energized, the more fortified, the more poised, the more emotionally unflappable you will become no matter what your circumstances. With each bite, with each sip, there is a law of increasing marginal utility, Paul would say, that sets in. The law of increased returns. That's what makes Christ unique. Paul calls it the secret of contentment. It's his secret weapon that he wants us to understand and experience for ourselves. His secret weapon that enables him to face anything, even death. All things through Christ I can do. And so, a couple of headings. He's able to face wealth and prosperity, which sounds a little bit strange. He's also able to face sorrow and loss through Christ. Strange language. I am able to face being successful, handsome, loaded, popular. 
I'm able to face all these things. I'm able to cope with them. What's he getting after here? If you have any experience in life, if you have any personal experience with affluence, you know exactly what he's talking about here. It does not deliver on what it promises. You have to learn the secret to being able to face even living in plenty and abundance. We did a whole series. It lasted several months on the book of Ecclesiastes. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, whether it's Solomon or somebody writing in the tradition of Solomon, we're not 100% sure. But what we do know is this. He was wildly successful. He got all of uh, the properties and the money and the women and the luxury and the fame imaginable. And his conclusion was it's all vapor. It's all like smoke. It's all just vaporizing out of my grasp. All of these things that so many of us build our lives around trying to achieve, trying to get there, it doesn't deliver. There's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. In fact, you can't even find the end of the rainbow, he says. It's a goose chase without a goose. There are three other examples uh, that I thought of just this morning from the New Testament. One is Nicodemus. He's got wealth. He's a pillar of the community. He's a celebrated leader. And what does he do? He comes to Jesus Christ, this poor blue-collar carpenter, in the middle of the night and wants to engage him in a discussion about the meaning of life. It's as if Nicodemus is coming to, to Jesus to say, you know, you've got nothing and yet it seems like you have everything. I've got everything, but in a strange way it feels like I've got nothing. And then you get the famous dialogue about you know, how you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. And then John 3.16 and all that. That's with Nicodemus. Another is a man that's identified as the rich young ruler in the Gospels who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've already accomplished everything at a very young age. I'm the Mark Zuckerberg of, of the first century. And yet, I feel like there's still more things I need to accomplish in order to be full. It's it's like, you know, Mariah Carey when she was at the peak of her career, more number one hits than anyone in the history of music besides Elvis Presley and the Beatles. She's still in her 20s, diva status. Barbara Walters says, what have you left to achieve? And her answer was happiness. It's a secret to be able to face prosperity. The Apostle Paul the same, remarkable success, He had an elite education, career success, a certain amount of fame in the circles that he ran in. And in chapter 3, verse 8, as Dr. Lim so adequately explained, all of those successes I look back now in comparison to what I have in Christ, and they're like poop in a dog bag, (laughs) right? That's what he actually says. We have sanitized translations, English translations will say, it was rubbish or it was dung. It is the cuss word for crap. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3.8. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he uses the Greek equivalent of the S word. And what he's saying is, look, the optics on my life were really, really good. Everybody wanted to be me in my circles. The optics were terrific and I was empty. And I became violent, an aggressor, 
And then the mercy of God came in and rescued me. So New York Times came out with this piece called A New Measure of Well-Being from a Happy Little Kingdom. And basically the thesis of this essay is affluence will not, cannot, does not guarantee happiness. And sometimes it actually creates the reverse effect. And, and this was, this was well-studied research. Sociologists, psychiatrists, etc. contributed to this research. And basically $70,000 a year was, was the magic income where, where you're no longer depressed, uh, you know, as depressed as you were in poverty or scarcity when you reach 70000 But after you start exceeding 70000 in your annual income, the law of diminishing returns starts to kick in. With every successive $10,000 you bring home, your misery quotient goes up. In other words, Paul says, as well as the New York Times, wealth, affluence, prosperity works a lot like pizza. You eat that fifth piece, you think it's going to satisfy you, but it ends up making you sick and fat and slow. The United States, still the wealthiest nation in the world, global leader in commerce and consumption, currently ranks number 23 in happiness. It's everywhere. You, know, you may have read this um, interview with Anthony Hopkins, famous actor, celebrated actor who's still at it. I think he's in his 80s now. Uh, this interview that The Atlantic did with him, and he was incredibly candid. And one of the things he said in that interview was this, I meet young people, speaking of actors in particular, I meet young people and they want to act and be famous. And I tell them, when you get to the top of the tree, there's nothing up there. Most of this is nonsense. Most of this is a lie. Two names, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain. Two stories of tragedy, cautionary tales, three things in common. They were at the top of the tree in their field, Kate Spade in fashion and design, Anthony Bourdain in reality TV, and, and, and uh, they were at the top of the tree, and they experienced the lack that Nicodemus came to Jesus for, that the rich ruler couldn't find. They experienced the lack while at the top of the tree, but concluded tragically that they couldn't face another day of it. Couldn't find the secret to facing prosperity. Cynthia Heimel from The Village Voice says, when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, He grants you your deepest wish, and then He giggles merrily when you suddenly realize you want to kill yourself. Here's where Cynthia Heimel is mistaken. What we think is our deepest wish is not really our deepest wish. When I think that my deepest wish is companionship, truly my deepest wish beyond that is something that companionship points to, and that's the love and safety and friendship an ecstatic intimacy that can only come from Christ. Or if I believe that my 
deepest wish is to be rich and famous. What I'm really after behind that is the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. Eternal pleasures are at His right hand, as the Psalms so eloquently say, or a good job, or what have you. The poet Wallace Stevens is very insightful on this. He talks about contentment, and he says, to find contentment, what we need to find is an imperishable bliss, something to latch our hearts onto that cannot perish, that cannot be taken away from us, that, that you know, in the words of Jesus, thieves cannot steal and destroy, and moth cannot come in and corrupt. We need, he says, an imperishable bliss. When, when my bliss, Stephen says, is connected to a good job, a great meal, a lovely view, these things are all perishable. And he writes this, even as I'm sitting back and content, I realize this is actually stimulating in me the desire for something which this object, whatever it is, wealth, money, power, sex, there's this desire stimulated, stimulated in me for this object, whatever it is, this finite created object, which has aroused the desire in me it can't, that it cannot fulfill. Even in contentment, I feel the need of some imperishable bliss. This is a secularist's way of saying don't mistake appetizers for the feast. But he's also saying it's terrifying that I don't even know what the feast is. I don't even know where to find it, but I know there's something more. I wish I could grasp it. Eric Fromm, a disciple of Freud, said essentially the same thing in different words. That psychiatry, all psychiatry can do, Fromm says, is diagnose the problem. This is to tell you how screwed up you are and why you are so screwed up. But it can't take you to this imperishable bliss. Goose chase without a goose. Remember when Jesus said it? that it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to enter through the eye of the needle? Does that mean we all need to take a vow of poverty? It does. Maybe for some of us it does. Like the rich ruler, that's, that's what it would have taken from the rich ruler for, for Jesus to really capture his heart. But that, that was just his instruction to the rich ruler. He didn't tell Job or Abraham to impoverish himself, or Nicodemus for that matter. It was Nicodemus who ended up financing the, the royal tomb of Jesus, for instance, that's not what it's about. It's not about the possession of money. It's, it's about money possession, possessing you in those cases. It's not impossible even for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus says it's very, very hard. Because what it requires is, is a, an emotional detachment, to use counselor language, an emotional detachment from perishable things. And then a reattachment after you detach from perishable goods, you reattach to the imperishable God. That's why he says, I can do all things, not in and of myself, but through Christ who gives me strength. And what's so fun about this is when you detach from the perishable goods and then attach to the imperishable God, your enjoyment quotient of the perishable good grows. The less you rely on them, the more you enjoy them. You get, it every, you get everything back. There's Lewis eloquently said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Jesus said it first though, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then everything else will be added unto you as well. 
You can face your affluence and your prosperity. You can. There's a promise. It's possible. And you can also face sorrow and loss. Verse 12 tells us that he's facing hunger. He's facing need. There's also a secret there that has to be learned. Remember, he's being surrounded right now by prison walls. He's facing a sure death by execution by the Roman state where it's illegal to declare anyone Lord but Caesar. What's the difference between us and Paul? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always from from a dungeon. And then he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. And how did he get in this jail cell? The whole story is told in Acts chapter 16 where, where Paul and Silas and others are preaching the gospel to the people of Philippi out in public, and then a mob starts to form against them. And and, and a lot like internet mobs form on social media and and just shame people until they they shut down. But that was happening in real time, in person. It was violent. And it says the people turned them over to the the authorities. The authorities threw them in jail, and then they got, you know, beaten, whipped, and so on. And what do they do, Paul and Silas, at midnight on the very same day that they are unjustly incarcerated and oppressed? They pray to God, they rejoice, and they sing. What is the difference between us and Paul? What distinguishes us? When the internet shuts down or the cable goes out, we have an emotional meltdown. When Paul gets oppressed, thrown in prison, he's overcome with joy. Why? Because the internet and cable, those are perishable goods. Paul's heart was latched on to an imperishable bliss. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. He would also say in Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm a blessed, satisfied man. You might say that Paul had learned to sing in the rain. You remember that movie, Singing in the Rain, where the, the guy in the story is, is just acting ridiculous. You know, it's pouring rain, thunder is clapping, lightning is coming down, and all he can do is skip, smile, giggle, and sing. I'm singing in the rain, what a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. David Filson plays guitar better than I sing. What was compelling this guy in the worst kind of weather to sing like that? Is he crazy or is there something else in play? Here's what was at play. There's a bigger reality that overshadowed all the storms, and it was that he had fallen in love. And the same person had fallen in love with him. And when you're a man in love, your focus is unflappable. It feels like the equivalent of an imperishable bliss because it actually points to one that we are our beloved's, and our beloved is ours. And no amount of thunder can destroy that. You know, the number one defeater belief for Christianity, a defeater belief is, 
is a belief system that defeats Christianity as a legitimate worldview in the eyes and the hearts of a skeptic or of, of, of one who just believes they cannot believe and cannot buy into Christianity and Christ. The number one defeater belief is the problem of suffering. Theodicy, the theologians and scholars call it. It wrestles with two apparent contradictions. God is in control of everything and is 100% good and loving all the time, and there is pain in the world over which God is in control and His love hovers over it. In the minds of humans, these two realities are mutually exclusive. You can't have one without the other. They can't coincide. We're like the child on the table, the two-year-old at well-shot visit time to the doctors. It's mom and dad's job to hold the child down so that the needle can, can go into the arm or the rear end or wherever it goes. And all the child can feel is betrayal. And all the parent can think is, oh, if you only knew that this hurts me so much more than it hurts you to do this. If you only knew the why behind the what right now. If you only knew this was a life-saving endeavor that's happening right now. Not betrayal, if you only knew. And don't you feel like we get that way with God too? We're like the kid on the table. And all we can think of with our finite view of things is that there's no way that this could be reflective of wisdom and love and sovereignty. But the truth of the matter is we are too naive, just like the two-year-old child. We are too naive to fully appreciate what God might be up to and that God will only reveal in the long term. You know, Garth Brooks brings it home in a different way. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he doesn't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. But we have to learn this. We have to learn it. We have learned, Paul says, the secret of contentment. We have taken our heads and invested our heads into something that we've learned so that over time it will travel into our heart and our heart will follow the same trajectory as what's come into our heads. It's essentially the Scriptures. Whatever is true, lovely, excellent, praiseworthy, the things that we talked about last week, essentially everything surrounding Jesus Christ and His perfect and finished work and His everlasting love and everything that goes with it, we've learned it. We've learned the secret. We've learned to fixate. We've learned what our one thing is. So at, at the recommendation of uh, Josh Denny, one of the members of our church and, and elders in our church, uh, I, I had the glorious privilege of watching the movie last week, Borg versus McEnroe. You can get it on iTunes and I think on Amazon. Um, I was a Bjorn Borg junkie growing up. I admired Borg. You know, there, were, there was this major rivalry bef- between Borg and McEnroe for several years. And um, what I didn't know back then was both of them were filled with rage. You would have never known it with Borg. You know, McEnroe's strategy with his rage was to vent it and to lash it out. Borg's was to stuff it down with this Zen-like mindfulness to look within, 
to keep your cool, to never let them see you sweat. And the watching world looks at Borg with such respect and esteem. That is a human being who is so at peace. If only I had what he has. He's unflappable, but the truth is he spent those years, much like Andre Agassi did, if you read his autobiography uh, called Open, you'll see the same picture. Borg was miserable. He was a miserable, anxious wreck. So much so that after winning five Wimbledons, he decided to cash in his rackets at age 26, which many would say is the prime of an athlete's career. Just couldn't do it anymore. You know, this word here that Paul uses for content is a Greek word meaning self-sufficient. This was a stoic virtue uh, of self-sufficiency that you got this way. You look inside yourself, find resources inside of you to help you be as happy in a bear market as you are in a bull market. Make it happen. To be as happy in excruciating loss as you are in glorious gain. Then the Stoic philosophers would say, you, you've won. You've beaten life. Why would Paul use the same words? He's not a Stoic. He's using the same word, but he's repurposing it. He says, I get, whereas the Stoics, you know, seek their source inside of themselves, I am, I am anchoring myself in a source outside of myself, in an imperishable bliss. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The, the, the Stoics presume to be self-sufficient. I'm here to declare that I am Christ-sufficient, and you can be too. And if you are, you can learn over time to sing even in the rain. The earlier you start, the better. The Ecclesiastes writer, remember, one of the things he said from his place of of being uh, further along in life, rich and miserable, Here's my advice to younger people coming up. Remember your Creator in the days that you were young. Don't start late. Don't wait till your deathbed. Don't wait until you accomplish this, that, and the other. Don't wait till you have kids. Don't wait until you get into the sweet spot of your career. Don't wait because the happiness will never come until you get this right first. Remember your Creator starting now. Get into the Word so the Word gets into you. Get into Christ so Christ gets into you. It's your only shot at happiness. It's your only chance at an imperishable bliss. Otherwise, you're chasing a goose that doesn't exist. You're chasing the end, end of a rainbow that doesn't exist. You, you, you're, 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 you're chasing after a pot of gold that does not exist. You're looking for a leprechaun, looking for a unicorn. It isn't there. Listen to Anthony Hopkins. When the day of prosperity comes, if you're remembering your Creator... From the day of your youth, if you are investing in the gift that Christ has entrusted to you that's already in your possession, you can look at prosperity and say, how nice. I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts, while recognizing that it's not going to, and I'm going to share it as much as I can as a picture and a sign of the kingdom that's to come. And when sorrows come, you'll start preaching sermons to yourself that sound a little bit like this. I know that I know that I know that this hurts him a lot more than it hurts me. The proof of the love of Christ is not a raise. It's not a career in the city of your dreams. 
It's not the best sex you could ever dream of at age 58 after you've, like Scotty Smith said, traded your spouse in for a Diet Coke. That's not what it is. The proof of the love of Christ is the cross of Christ. He got the, scalp, he got the sword there so that all that's left for us is the scalpel. Surgical, a healing agent. Learn the secret and you might just be able soon enough to sing in the rain. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, inhale, exhale. Um, you're calling us to something that in many ways is unfathom unfathomable to us in this land that we call the land of the free and the home of the brave. In a room filled with people who know where their next meal is coming from. who have clothes on our backs and yet who also know on some level how prosperity doesn't deliver on its promises and how misery can really wreck us. Thank you, Lord, that you do not shame us in our idolatries. You don't shame us in our discouragements. Instead, you come to us and invite us to come to you. And you say, come to me all who are weary and burdened by your perishable bliss, by your goose chase with no goose. Come to me the imperishable bliss, Jesus Christ, through whom you can do all things. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. light. No career, no romance. No body type, no exercise plan, no diet, no amount of money, no amount of vacation homes or Ferraris or Honda Civics, none of it. No elite education, none of it is able to deliver an imperishable bliss. None of us forgives us like you do. None of it forgives us like you do. None of, us loves, none of it loves us like you do. None of it holds us like you do. None of us will ever give us the safety and favor like you do. I can do, we can do all things through Christ. Alleluia. All we have is Christ. All we need is Christ. Meet us at your table. Amen.